come down to you. It might be too close. They're too close. You're too close. Back you up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Good morning. Uh, my name is Lorna, and I'm an alcoholic. You know, I, I think I'm always, even after all these years, still a little surprised that you so readily respond with hello, Lorna, and that you're not gasping with amazement. But um, I, I, I think I really kind of expect you to say, no, surely not, no. Um, but however, um, I, first of all, this, I want to thank so much the committee and especially Jeannie for pursuing me and asking me to uh, speak at your convention this morning. I know you have the choice of many speakers and um, I feel like I have crossed the Rockies and I've entered the land of the great speakers. <laughs> and, um, I'm in California, and, but please don't tell them I'm here because I have this image of the great speaker striding across the state and picking me up by my ankle and flinging me back to New York. Um, so um, it's not lost on me that I'm here, and, uh, and I want to thank you very much, and I want to thank... Um, Razor, who's been an absolutely wonderful host and such a gentleman, and uh, all the other people that uh, his wife, Lisa, who put up the, the basket uh, for us in our room, and Laurie and Scott, who are actually the responsible for giving a tape of mine to, um, to Jeannie, and everyone here, Irene and all of you uh, who are here. And I... You know, when I first used to speak, I, I used to say and I used to think, well, I hope there's something I can say that's helpful to you or that you get something out of what I say. And really, that's a little arrogant of me to think that I'm going to be helpful to you. Um, I'm not here to help you at all. I'm here because God thinks I need a lot of help. And... Um, <laughs> I get a chance to share my story, and uh, the, one of the great recovery phrases I heard at the San Diego Convention some years ago was, the message I carry is the message I need to hear. So whatever it is I'm saying, I, I need to hear that. Um, you know, I, uh, just a little story. Uh, a few years ago, the original manuscript of the big book came up for sale at Sotheby's in New York. Sotheby's is a major art auction house. And the manuscript had been given by Lois to some fellow who worked with her, and she wanted to give him uh, something to thank him, and so she gave him Bill's original manuscript. And that fellow became, you know, years went by and that fellow became ill and he had medical bills and he needed money. So he put this manuscript up for sale. Now, Sotheby's understood that it was an important American document and they gave it its due 
recognition in a catalogue, a big catalogue, but it wasn't the only thing. It was a wholesale of manuscripts and documents, and this was part of it. And I think there were like five pages devoted to it and photographs and things like that. And um, the estimate on it was um, somewhere in the region of three to 400,000. And um, the, the day of the sale came, and the sale wasn't held in the major auction room. It was held in a subsidiary gallery, much like I'm being transmitted to a subsidiary gallery here. Um, um, hello, subsidiary. Um, so... Um, and the room was full of AAs, just packed to the rafters with AAs. Anyway, the auction starts, and it's a very lively bidding between phone bidders, and the gavel finally comes down at 1.4 million. And you know the AAs, you know how dramatic we are. They were gasping and flinging ourselves on each other, and they're, they're weeping and carrying on, and... Um, the auctioneer was not the fellow who catalogued it. The auctioneer was just the auctioneer. And I looked at him, and I saw him turn to the record keeper who sat beside the rostrum, and I saw him ask her, did this guy write anything else? <laughs> So, um, I also forgot, and I d definitely wanted to mention, because I have an eye for art, I wanted to mention the beautiful podium that Ron, is it? Ron made here, and um, I thought it was something from, you know, the Rockefeller Center, 1930s. It is so beautiful, and I understand that he makes one every year for you, so... Um, Thank you very much for that. Um, I also wanted to say how much I enjoyed our opening skit uh, that was done. I, those kids were absolutely amazing. And I suppose you're wondering, is she ever going to tell her story? Um, probably not. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're asked to, you know, share our experience, strength, and hope. And, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinions, but I have a lot. <laughs> so, um, and I'm of a certain age that I, well, let's put it that way. Um, so this is what happened for me. My husband finally walked out the door, and I thought it was the most interesting thing he'd ever done. Um, <laughs> It really caught my attention, and uh, <laughs> I was devastated, absolutely devastated. 
And I, I wanted to get him back very desperately. And that one evening I was in a sauna with a girlfriend of mine, and she said, you know, Lorna, last night I went to this meeting called Al-Anon, and all the women sounded just like you. And she started talking to me, and something clicked, like, oh, my God, I think my husband is an alcoholic. And the very next day, I mean, I'm not one to mess about. Believe, believe me, I'm not. So the very next day, I was in a meeting of Al-Anon. And it was suggested at those meeting, that meeting that one go to open AA meetings. So the very next day, I inquired of the intergroup or general service, whatever it was, and it was no, it, there was no computer in those days, so I was on the phone, and I inquired where there was a meeting that I could attend. And it just so happened that that very evening, Thursday evening, this meeting called Lennox Hill at 90th Street and 5th Avenue was um, meeting, and they had an open meeting where people like me, who were not alcoholics, could attend. <laughs> so... After work that evening, I worked at Sotheby's, actually. I'm the first woman art auctioneer in America, so I had this very highfalutin job. And I went across the avenue to the Carlisle Hotel um, on Madison Avenue into Bemelman's Bar. And I was with my friends, and I loved to drink on an empty stomach. Loved to. I... um, you know, I didn't want to talk to the bartender. I didn't want to eat the peanuts or the pretzels. I wanted that vodka and orange juice. Woomph! And um, so I was in... I, I, I didn't eat all day. I called it being busy, but I was really, you know, fasting so that I could... <laughs> so that I could get the most out of uh, my first drink. Anyway, the, the time went on, and I said to my friends, Ooh! It's almost 7.30. I'm going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll be back. Um, So, I toddled up the road to this open meeting... And it was three speakers, and as I said, people like me who were not alcoholics could could go. So I sat down, and this fellow got up on the stage, and he stood at a podium, and in front of the podium was this board with, you know, the AA Gothic writing on it, and it said, but for the grace of God. So I suppose what was supposed to happen was we in the audience was supposed to look at this poor wretch up there and realize that but for the grace of God, we could be him. And um, So, anyway, he said, my name is Don and I'm an alcoholic. And I thought, well, good God, we don't all want to know. Um, You know, I mean, surely there's some things you keep to yourself, really. Does your mother know? Um, But anyway, Dom went on to tell his story, and and I was moved, and I was anxious for him, and I was joyful and touched and uh, celebrated. celebrating for him and celebratory thank you celebratory and um, 
I had no idea that was called identification. No idea whatsoever. <laughs> and after dawn, there were two other fellows got up and told equally as interesting stories. I was fascinated. And I think that I don't really have to go on. I think that is what qualifies me as an alcoholic. I think that if you like coming to these meetings and hearing about how people ruined their lives and were crawling on the bathroom floor and lost their jobs and their homes and their careers and maybe an arm or two, and, um, and you find it interesting, there's something the matter with you. Well, you know, I, I, it's a long time since that first drink, and not only um, that first meeting, and not only did I find it fascinating then, I, I still find it fascinating. I like to get on the phone and talk about it. I like to go to coffee shops and talk about it. It's endlessly interesting. A little while ago, and you, where can you get this kind of entertainment, really? A little while ago, I was at a meeting... <laughs> And this woman was sharing about how she came home and she was so blind drunk and she knew that the key had something to do with opening her front door. But she wasn't sure what the connection was. And she was standing in front of the door waving and chanting like this. Well, you know, we were on the floor. It was so funny. So, however, that was, my, that was my introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I went back to Bemelman's Bar afterwards. And what did I know about anonymity? I didn't understand. I thought it was a jolly good job you were anonymous after all you got up to. You should not talk about it. And um, the, I told my friends at the bar, well, you'd never guess who is an alcoholic. <laughs> and... But I continued to go to meetings. I continued to go and, and fast forward, very fast forward. It, it uh, happened to me very quickly. After the marriage broke up, uh, my uh, bottom kind of zoomed towards me. Um, and my bottom wasn't some bell-clanging reality. It, I have a very female bottom. It was very um, tawdry, icky, mucky, shabby. Oh, I didn't wear that, did I? Um, that... <laughs> That kind of a bottom. Um, I often describe myself, I was like a plane coming into land without my landing gear. And, you know, I ended up in the bushes and the wings were torn off and passengers strewn all over the place and underwear on the bushes and things. Um, it was just messy. Um, but one of the things that really kind of is a signature for my bottom is missing out. I always missed out. I was never appropriate. You know, alcoholics are always whining. Oh, I never felt like I fit in. I never felt like I'd been given the rule book. Well, we don't, you know. Um, <laughs> we're just wrong all the time. <laughs> And 
And I was in London at the end of my... Uh, this was 1976. I came in the rooms in 1976. And I, it, was, uh, it was a very hot summer in England. And I was there with my company. And Sotheby's had a very big ball at some fancy hotel in London. And all the people that were important to the, our art business were there. There was, you know, heads of museums and people that had big collections we were courting, and Lord and Lady Duwar Diddy and God knows who else. And um, <laughs> I, um, I was there all done up in a gown and all, all that, but I always remember I couldn't be bothered to wash my hair and I got it tied back. And um, I have a picture of myself with that, and I've got a cigarette in one hand with a Dunhill cigarette holder, and I've got a drink in the other. And while they're dancing, I'm going from table to table, emptying their glass into mine. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, my behavior doesn't quite go with my outfit. Or... Um, <laughs> Or my position in the company, but um, I don't give a damn, and I don't care what they think, and it's me, after all, me, me, me. And I'm different, and I'm swell, and I'm unusual, and I'm artistic, and autistic is more the joke. <laughs> so so um, I, um, and I related, my sponsor very much related to that story because she was a nun. She had been a nun, and she was... Makes you wonder what they get up to behind those convent walls, right? And she was in before Vatican II, and so she was wearing a full habit. And she said she came into New York uh, once, and uh, she went into a bar and ordered a drink. And she thought, there's something not quite right with the way... <laughs> with the way I'm dressed. And... Uh, uh, um, but she couldn't kind of get it, you know, what it was. Anyway, um, that uh, summer, I... Oh, I, I forgot to mention that I was ter terribly devastated about the husband. Oh, just devastated. But I'm having an affair with someone else. And, um, and I wanted to marry this other fellow. Uh, the fact that he hadn't mentioned it, it didn't seem to bother me, just a detail. And um, the reason I wanted to marry him was that he had the one thing in the world I wanted. And it wasn't great manners. It wasn't a fine behavior. It wasn't uh, great intelligence. He had a maid. And, and I was desperate for the maid. <laughs> I wanted someone to lay my clothes out, run my bath, brush my hair, tell me to eat, tell me to wake up, tell me to go to bed. Life was becoming all just too much for me, just too, too much. And, um, you know, I often say that I let that fellow touch the sacred temple in order to get to the maid. Um, <laughs> And in some circles, that's called prostitution. <laughs> However, um, also uh, something that signifies my bottom and missing out was I, I came to this country uh, 10,000 years ago when I was 18 years old, and um, 
Before I came, uh, my friends and I on a Sunday night would go to Richmond on the Thames and we would go to this sort of shabby hotel that had seen better days, the Station Hotel, and we would dance to this rock and roll band and, and the leader of that band thought I was a bit of all right. He liked me very much and he wanted to go out with me, but I had my eyes set on America. I wasn't going to be stopped by this fellow. And... Um, Anyway, the, the name of that band was the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I can always tell the age of the audience when I tell that story. And there's this, ooh, you know. Now, Mick and I might not have walked off in the sunset together, but it would have been a good notch on the old belt, don't you think? So, all right, fast forward, fast forward. I, um, I had uh, that, that, that trip to London. Ah, yes. They, um, I left there, and I had, was going to meet the fellow with the maid in Paris. And it sounds very exotic, but believe me, it was not exotic. And uh, I'm in London, and I want to come back to New York to see the tall ships going up the Hudson. It was America's bicentennial. And I desperately wanted to see those tall ships. And I uh, was on a, uh, in a car getting, going to London Airport, and my father was standing at the garden gate waving goodbye to me. And I was so wrapped up in self, self, self that I was like, yeah, yeah, bye, bye. <laughs> And it was the last time I saw him. And it, it, it tells us in our literature that we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. I regret that. I regret that I did not pay attention to that. And, but, you know, it's a great lesson because here it is 34 years later and I remember it so crisply and it helps me. I'm not always very good at it, but it helps me in dealing in the present. You know, am I getting something at Starbucks or at the checkout counter, and am I on the cell phone with someone? Am I not dealing with this person right in front of me? Am I, doing, am I in some other realm while you're standing in front of me? Am I all over the place? Am I saying goodbye or hello to you in a very casual way? I mean, if this was my last moment on earth, you'd be the most precious people in my life. And, you know, who is going to be there with me or with me in those last moments? And am I paying attention or am I just not here? And, you know, it's so important, I think, that we do pay attention. And in this day and age, it's very easy not to pay attention because we do have cell phones and we do have things. We're always checking to see who wants to talk to us and we miss it, you know? <laughs> And for you and me, being alcoholics, it's very important that we stay attentive because I don't want to be some, find myself sitting in a bar wondering how I got there. I don't want to be in some situation thinking, how on earth did this happen? You know, I was sharing the other night that um, this amazing story I heard recently, and probably some of you have heard it, of um, denial. And uh, the newscaster, when they were telling the story, could hardly get the story out. She was laughing so hard. 
um, this fellow was arrested and they found a packet of cocaine and a packet of marijuana in the crack of his ass. Um, and he said, well, the marijuana's mine, but I have no idea about the cocaine. And I identified, you know. Um, oh, goodness, how did that get there? Um, so, I, you know, I, I've spoken quite a bit already. I've, I've, a lot, I've got an awful lot to say. So, um, I, I come... Uh, uh, that fellow came back from Paris, and we arranged to meet, and I, um, we were going to have brunch together. And that morning I got up, and I fixed myself a carafe of vodka and orange juice, and I pulled my, poured myself a tumbler full of uh, these screwdrivers. And I, I held the glass, and I remember looking at it, thinking, oh, my God, I'm drinking in the morning. This is a morning drink. And there's a saying, the Chinese have, there's an old Chinese saying, I mean, have you ever heard of a modern Chinese saying? They're all... <laughs> they're all ancient. Um, anyway, there's this uh, ancient Chinese saying that says the beginning of wisdom is to call something by its correct name. That's why our steps uh, uh, invite us to admit that we're alcoholics because nothing can happen until we make that admission to identify ourselves correctly. So um, I, I, I said, oh my God, this is a morning drink. And now I had had a drink in the morning many times before, but I'd called it brunch. I'd called it a gallery opening or toasting the bride or Wednesday or something. Um, <laughs> you know, but I'd never called it what it was. And this particular morning, I identified it as um, a morning drink. And I got in the shower, and I couldn't release the glass from my hand. Anyway, I went and had lunch with this guy. It was a disaster. And I ended up on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I don't know if any of you know New York, and you know that's a whole big flight of steps going up to the entrance to the museum. And people were going in and out. It was a Sunday, and life was happening. And I'd never felt so screamingly alone in all my life. I was 30 years old. I, uh, I just, I'd come back from England to see those tall ships, uh, and I had missed the entire thing. The whole of America was celebrating, and I was alone. I, I, had, I had this huge public job. Why did I have no friends? Why did I have no one? I was so isolated. And um, anyway, I, I just felt so lonely, and I didn't know what to do with myself. And I stood up, and I thought, you know, I'll go to one of those meetings. And I made a phone call, and I found out where there was a meeting. And there was that one, that very afternoon at the Moravian Church on Lexington in the 30s, and I went down there, and it was exactly as one imagines an AA meeting to be. It was very hot August day, and um, 
there were guys in raincoats in the room. And it was all very low bottom. It was very Salvation Army-ish. In fact, I think it was the Salvation Army. Um, Anyway, I walked in, and by this time, I'm so full of vodka and orange juice and the heat, and I had my hair long and tied in braids across the top of my head very tightly because I could wear it up for three and four days at a time without doing anything to it. I fancied I looked like Heidi, but I looked insane. Um, And... uh, You know, the hair was giving me a headache, the vodka was giving me a headache, the heat was giving me a headache, and I just flopped down. And this woman spoke, and she didn't look unlike me. She was big-boned, and she was a tall woman, and she started telling my story, and she spoke, and she told my story up to where I was at that very moment, and then she went on for another 15 years. And I got to see coming attractions. I... I knew the only difference, that was the grace for me. The only difference between that woman and myself was moment by moment by moment by moment. And uh, I was going to be her. You know, we always think of things in the future as like they're way in the future. And suddenly they're here. Boom, you're 20. Boom, you're 30, 40, 60 in my case. I mean... I know you're amazed, but um, uh, it happens. Anyway, um, so I I, I suddenly realized, oh, my God, I'm here for myself. I drink. I've been going to these meetings. It's me. I I drink. It's not the husband, the lover, the job, the country. I drink. And I, I think the angels kind of flopped back on their clouds going, oh, Finally, she's got it. Um, the, um, and it, the idea was so horrific to me, I ran out onto Lexington Avenue and knocked a few more back. Um, and the following day, I walked into a meeting, and you were all there, and, and you'd seen me before, and I said, I'm here for myself. And you didn't say, well, about time. You know, we, we knew you had a problem. And... Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I often wondered how you knew I was new when I first walked in the door. You know, when I first used to speak, I, at the end of my talk, I used to think to myself, God, the next time I speak, I must get my story straight. And there's no getting it straight because I see it differently all the time. You know, when I walked in, part of me thought, that you took one look at me and you nudged each other and you said, oh, thank God Lorna is here because she adds such great tone and class to AA. (laughs) And we can finally hold our heads up high and walk in the sunlight of notoriety and uh, we can abandon anonymity because she will lead us. And... You know, in the meantime, you were patting me on the back and saying, you keep coming back, sweetheart. You're in the right place. 
And I didn't know what it was about me that betrayed I was new. You know, um, I'd been wearing the same dress for three months. It wasn't that I didn't have... That's why I needed the maid. It wasn't that I didn't have anything else. I couldn't be bothered to put another outfit together. I was festooned in jewellery. I had jewellery all over the place. I had gobs of makeup on. And I, I, I was like Elizabeth I. I couldn't be bothered to take it off at night. I just slathered more on every day. And I'm so grateful that I came into the program before the fashion of tattooing and piercing came about because... I'm sure I would have had the Last Supper put on my chest, or, um, you know, um, or the crucifixion with Roman soldiers and weeping virgins and things, you know. Um, and I probably would not have been content with a dainty little stud on my nose. I would have had to have a plate in my lower lip. I mean, um, so I was saved from all that. Believe me, I was saved. And so were you. Um, anyway, so uh, I heard that one got a sponsor, and uh, this is leaping very far forward. I asked this woman if she would sponsor me, and she didn't say yes, and she didn't say no. And when people ask me if I sponsor them, I never say yes, and I never say no. I say, here's my phone number, give me a call. And it's not up to the sponsor to make the relationship. It's up to the sponsee. And, you know, if I called her and left a message, she didn't call me back. She didn't want what I had. I wanted what she had. And it was my responsibility to call her, to keep calling until I got her. And um, so it's the sponsee that makes the relationship. So I pursued her, and I called her until something was established. And she knew I couldn't grasp the fact that I drank. She knew I couldn't really see it. I thought I'd nipped it in the bud. I thought I was likely dusted with alcoholism, that I didn't really have a serious case of it. You know, I didn't really need it the, rest, the way the rest of you... And I knew you were damaged. I knew you were, because... Um, I heard that some of you had been here three years, five years, ten years, and the really sick ones um, a little longer because, you know, and, and, and you had to keep coming every day because you kept forgetting it. You kept forgetting what, what you'd learned the day before. And it was like, oh, yeah, the first drink. Oh, yeah, 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 all right. And I, I knew I was bright. You know, I, I'm an auctioneer. I can manage a room. I can keep lots of figures in my head. I thought, this is not going to be difficult. How difficult is this going to be? Well, 34 years later, and I'm still trying to get it. So um, uh, anyway, my sponsor said this one thing to me, which I always like to share, because to me, it was the galvanizing thing. And it was, she never told me I had to get in touch with my drinking story, never told me to work the steps, never said anything like that. She really believed that this was a spiritual program and that I would be led by my own way and my own things in my path to go forward, to want more. Because the, the galvanizing thing for me has, I come to meetings because I'm greedy. I know that this is where it's happening, and I don't want you getting something I'm not getting. And 
I have to do those steps in order to go further and to get more. And she said to me, you know, Lorna, if you stay with us and follow our suggestions, you can have a life, you can develop a life that will be like having a quiver of golden arrows on your back. And when you come into a situation in life that you're not too sure how to handle, you'll be able to reach back, select the perfect arrow, put it in your bow, thwang, and hit bullseye every time. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was what got me hooked into AA. I wanted to hit bullseye. I was never appropriate. I didn't dress appropriately. I didn't speak appropriately. I didn't laugh appropriately. I wasn't appropriate. I knew it, but I just didn't know how to not be that way. You know, no one ever said anything to me about my drinking. People said things to me like, shh. <laughs> and do you mind? And, uh, and what you thought was rather amusing is in fact rather spiteful. So, um, and you know, I didn't lose my job because I think this accent carried me through a lot, I'd be honest with you. But it was coming, it was coming. My, my, my boss would have called me in and he would have said, you know, Lorna, you're great you, and you make a lot of money for the company, but you're a loose cannon and we never know what you're going to do next, say next, come to work, dress next. I mean, every job has its uniform, whether you're an art director or whether you're digging a ditch or whether you're a banker. Everything has its uniform. And, you know, in the, I'm in the art business and I'm in the, the auction business. It's a very staid sort of business. And, the, um, you know, the year's minis came out. I was in skating skirts and... Uh, <laughs> I just was wrong, and, uh, and I'd done a lot of dancing, and so I couldn't be bothered to... Um, I would do Sinead turns down the lobby of where I was and, ele and hit the elevator button with my toe. Um, and, you know, if I paid as much attention to my... Um, job as I did to my Sinead turns. I might have been president by now, but um, however, so I'm in sobriety and life, life happens to me. And you said to me, Lorna, look, you can either have this drink or you can have the whole rest of life, the whole bouquet of life with all its ups and downs, its joys and its tragedies and its sorrows, or this drink. And I'm saying... Can I think about it a minute? Um, and, you know, I chose life. I chose it, but I, what did I know how to do it? I needed you to tell me how to do it. And um, life has happened. You know, I, I, uh, my parents have died, and thank God I got to bury my parents, and they didn't bury me. Um, it was a, it's a great privilege to have your parents die and that we do the responsible thing. It's the right way around. And I'm sure in a group of this size, there are plenty of people in this room who have lost children, and it must be unbelievably painful. 
I have, um, uh, you know, I, I, I've had relationships, I've lost relationships, I've had heartbreaks, I've had uh, jobs and lost jobs, and um, uh, recently, uh, in the last few years, I was dreadfully ill. I, um, yeah. <laughs> I got, I don't know why I'm laughing, but anyway, I, um, <laughs> I had uh, cancer, and uh, the day I was diagnosed with cancer, I went to a meeting in the evening, and I and made the announcement, and I said, you know, I'm not the first woman with this news, neither will I be the last. And um, the biggest cause of death is being born in the first place. And my... And my sponsor, ever sympathetic, said, oh, for God's sake, you've already dealt with one deadly disease, you know. Um, but um, I will say this, that uh, I, I had a, a double mastectomy, and then I started uh, chemotherapy. And while I was, uh, when I had just uh, launching into the first round of chemotherapy, I, I was asked to do an audition for the first movie of Sex and the City. And um, I was, so I thought, well, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. I had just had my breasts lopped off and I had all these drains and things, so I went to the audition. It was something to do that day. So I, and I'm not an actress or anything like that, so I did this audition and I came and a little while later the phone rang and it was this, the casting director said, we'd like to offer you the part. And I said, you're joking. And she said, no. I said, well, how important is my look? And she said, it's very important. So I said, well, I better come clean. I said, I've just started chemotherapy, and by the next round, my hair's going to fall out. And she said, oh, I'll get back to you. Um, so the phone rang again about 15 minutes later, and uh, she said, well, we'd still like to offer you the part. And they altered the whole shooting schedule to get... I mean, they could have put a wig on me, but I think they were worried I was going to look dreadful. And um, they altered the whole shooting thing so that they could get me in. And, you know, I always say, don't, uh, don't bend over to pick up your popcorn because you'll miss me in the movie. But there I am. I'm the auctioneer in the movie. And, uh, uh, anyway, um, <laughs> I like to say, ladies, ladies, here I am, a woman of a certain age, without my breasts, about to go bald, and I'm in a sex movie. <laughs> Life beyond my wildest dreams. I'm, I'm finally a bimbo. <laughs> However, the um, uh, you know, I do all this uh, chemotherapy, and I almost die from the chemotherapy, and uh, I, my heart went into failure. I was, uh, and that's actually the reason I'm sitting here. Um, I, 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 not only did I want you to have a look at my pretty ankles and um, my Las Vegas shoes, but I have a defibrillator in my heart, in my chest, and if I stand too long, it might fire, 
and I don't want to be some missile going across the um, going across the room. So um, it's best I sit. Um, and it's nicer, don't you agree? It's nice. Yes, it's more intimate. I like it. Um, so there you have it, and uh, I, I, the, the whole thing, I was in the hospital four times in emergency. They were told that if you want to see her, you better hurry up and get there, and uh, all that sort of thing. But as you see, <laughs> I didn't uh, die. And um, I, uh, I, when I didn't die... I thought to myself, you know, there's some. I knew I was going to go. My health is not so. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought there's some things I want to say before I leave. (laughs) So I wrote a book, and it's all about me. It's so interesting. But actually, it's a lot of thoughts about, uh, you know, sobriety and being sober and, uh, and the journeys that I've had with the, in the last few years. And um, it was uh, very uh, interesting to really adhere to the traditions and not break anonymity in the book and not use words like sponsor and things like that. And, so it, and it also, at this stage, it was very cathartic in terms of a fourth step. I really got to revisit how do you really feel, and I didn't people please. I thought, well, I'm going to be dead before they read it, so I don't give a shit what I say. Oh! I beg your pardon. So unlike me. Um, Anyway, um, so th- th- that has been a, w- a wonderful gift for me to be able to uh, to do this, and um, I uh, so much has happened to me in the last few years. I was the witness for uh, a young man on I was his spiritual advisor uh, on death row in Texas, and that was a, a, a most amazing, hideous kind of experience, but one I would never have uh, missed. And it was Alcoholics Anonymous that allowed me to do that. And um, I've had a variety of experiences. Um, One of them um, uh, was that, uh, some of you know, that I was very friendly and close with Mother Teresa. And um, I I, I don't know how that was, but it was. It was just that way. I, I, I went to see her work. I wanted to see what that kind of unconditional love produced. I like the whole idea of the one in front of you. You deal with the one. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous, we're not about numbers. We're about the, per- the recovering alcoholic in front of us. It's not about how many sponsees we have or how many people at our meetings. It's the one, one, one. And Bill Wilson helped uh, Dr. Bob, one guy. And here we, uh, here we are. And uh, so I went to Calcutta to see her, and she'd never seen anything like me, and I'd never seen anything like her. And um, 
she told me off about the fact that I was wearing red nail polish and that, and I thought, how dare this midget done up in a tea towel <laughs> tell me... But anyway, um, Mother, I just want to say this to you. Mother was fascinated with Alcoholics Anonymous. She was intrigued that I was sober. And uh, she kept on taking me aside and wanted always, she always brought the conversation around to alcoholism. And sometimes I'd say to her, you sure you don't have a problem? Um, But let me tell you, she was in New York once, and we met somewhere in New York. She was getting some award from the Knights of Columbus or something, and we were going back up to the South Bronx, and um, she was in a... narrow and I hadn't been there very long when this young Indian priest came in to offer mass and you know the patient's table that rolls and they could eat off it well it was at the foot of the bed and it was set up as the altar so the the guy was standing at the foot of her bed facing mother I'm squashed in here like this there's a sister Monica standing next to me and two other sisters on the other side and He's saying mass, and he's a little nervous. And he, at the time for communion, he comes around the side of the bed and he dips the host in the chalice of wine. And he holds it up to Mother, and Mother very reverentially takes it on her tongue. (laughs) And I'm next. And you know how the, the, the computer goes in a nanosecond. I thought, oh God, not here. Please don't let me have to make a fuss here with this saint dying in bed next to me. Don't let me have to bring all the attention onto myself. Like me, me, me. Alcoholism. I can't have the first drink. So, you know, let me just take it this once. It's not booze. It's the blood of Christ. And in the next nanosecond, all of you went in front of me, and all the hundreds that have gone before me, and the millions that will hopefully come after me. And it matters what I do, 
in those unseen moments. It matters. Do I claim this? Do I pretend that, oh, well, here it doesn't matter? And it's all right if I serve alcohol in my house. It's all right if I go into a bar. It's all right because this is a big business deal and I, I should do it because I'm going to look a fool if I don't. And then I remembered Bill Wilson standing in that shabby suit in the Mayflower Hotel. And he didn't go to the bar. He went to the telephone. And, you know, spiritual life is not always comfortable. There's, some, we, there's a rather hallmark card attitude has come into AA on many levels that thinks we've got to be comfortable all the time. No, we don't. It's not comfortable. I don't think Jesus on the cross with his hands pierced with nails thought, oh, this is comfy. Um, <laughs> this is just the ticket. Um, so, and we have to stand up. It is awkward sometimes. But, you know, what, uh, can I feel awkward like that? Anyway, I said to him, no wine. Don't dip the host. And he's all, like, discombobulated. And he, I, I nudged sister next to me. She took it, and then he gave me a dry host, and he walks around the other side of the bed to give communion to the other sisters. And I felt exactly as I thought I was going to feel. I felt stupid. I felt awkward. I felt I disturbed mother's devotions, and the attention's not on her, it's on me. Whereupon her hand came across the covers, she took my hand and she pulled me down to her and she said, well done. You, you must continue to protect your precious gift. Yeah. And that's for you and me. That's what you and me have to constantly be reminded of, that we have a precious gift. It's not something ordinary. It's not ordinary. It seems like there's a lot of us here, and, but we're very rare. It's very small in the history of the world that people will consciously stay sober and you know, if the Metropolitan Museum of Art were to call me and say, Lorna, we have this Van Gogh, and we'd like you to take care of it, um, would I hang it in the bathroom? Would I put it in the garage? Would I stuff it behind the sofa? No, I'd put it in the best place in my home. I'd make sure the temperature was all right. I'd, I'd probably alter all the furnishings, and I'd invite you over to see this great piece. And, you know, that's a painting that's here today and gone tomorrow. And your message and my message is eternal, eternal. And Mother Teresa was so fascinated with AA because she didn't have the words of eternal life that you and I have. And those words are... I know how you feel. Let me tell you what happened to me. So there's one other story I'd like to tell about uh, mother and um, in terms of my own personal experience and my own character defects. I uh, was with her in Calcutta at one point or the other and um, she had to go to Delhi and we drove her to the airport to catch the plane. We get to the airport and the plane is delayed. 
So I would have sat there and done my nails, you know, read a magazine, but not her. She, we had to go, and she had a, a home very close by the airport where there were, were uh, orphan children and other people that are rejected on the streets. And uh, we get there, and it's a big, uh, a big center, and all the sisters are having supper. And... Mother pokes her ha- head around the curtains because the, where the sisters are is separated by half curtains across the doorways. And they're all shrieking and yelling and carrying on when they see her. And they all come out and we're all sitting under a tree. And a mother's talking to them about this, that, and the other thing. And finally I said to her, Ooh, you know, it's getting on, Mother. We better get to the airport. And she says, Yes, yes, I should come. I will come. And she stood up to walk so that I could walk her to the car and she is being stopped all the time this sister wants to be blessed and that one and mother here and this that and the other and she's constantly paying attention like you know um, I'm not going to say it but anyway um, she's paying attention to all these sisters that want to be blessed and I can feel my impatience rising, rising, rising. The time is going, you know, and you've got a plane to catch. We finally get to the car. I open the door, and I just want to say, get in. <laughs> Do you know? And... <clears throat> And as she's about to get in, the superior says, Mother, one of the children is dying. One of the babies is dying. And Mother stops, backs up, and says, Bring the child to me. Now, I, by this time, am over the top. I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, I don't say a word. But my body language is, we don't have time for dying babies. I mean... India's full of dying babies. I mean, and you've got a plane to catch. And I'm standing there. The steam must have been coming out of my ears. And Mother very gently puts her hand on my folded arms, like puts her hand, leans into me, and she says, Lorna, I will come. I just must see this child first. And Mother's thing was to see Jesus in the distressing disguise of the poor. Now, I know you can mention Jesus in an AA meeting and clear the room. I'm just talking, this is just, a, you know, I'm just telling this story, all right? So, and, you know, the poor are not always those that are in rags or don't have food. And the poor in America, we, we don't very often have the poor like that. But the she could see that I was poverty-stricken in my impatience. How, impa- how, po- how filled with poverty am I that I'm so intolerant and impatient and can't wait? How much of my life have I missed because I'm, <sighs> and let's get going, hurry up, uh, you know? And Mother saw in that moment, I don't know if I'm good at giving unconditional love, but I've received it. I've received it from you, and I've received it in that moment that for mother, I was just as worthy of salvation as that dying baby. And I was as important to her as just as that dying child. And in light of that, 
I want to say, because I'm sure it's going to mean something to someone in the room, that very often in AA meetings they say that the most important person in the room is the newcomer. Not necessarily so. There might be people in the room with 12, 16 years of sobriety that are dying inside, that feel, I've worked the steps, I've done this, I've got sponsee, I've spoken, I've gone to institutions, and my life is falling apart. What is the matter? I, I'm wrong, I'm hopeless, but no, the most important person in the room is the newcomer, the one that's sitting there, you know, can't. And... Um, <laughs> They're not the most important person. There's, there's no one more important than the other. And, uh, you know, I, I have a tremendous identification and pain for those people in their teens or somewhere in there that are going through hell. And it's a very dangerous time. You know, the teenage years in our, in our lives are dangerous. And it's very dangerous in sobriety because very often that thing will, will say to us, I've done all this and I've done all this and I've done this, 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 and I feel like this. There's something wrong with me. And you know what's wrong with me? Those steps don't work for me. And you know why they don't work? Because I'm not really an alcoholic. That's the danger. That's the danger. And you know, when people go out and drink, when people do have slips, I don't know how it is in California, but very often in New York they'll say, well, you have to go back to the beginning and you've got to start counting your days. Why don't you just put a bullet in their head? That is so terrible for anyone to say to anyone else, you have to start counting your days again. We lose more people at that crossroads there. You know, if someone comes in and they want to say they've got 87 years, fabulous. Oh, that's terrific. I mean, AA is only 75 years old, but you have 87? Um, you're counting from another lifetime, maybe, but that's great. And, you know, whatever you want to say is your day count, fine. It's none of my business. It's none of my business. My business is to help you stay sober. And there's no going back. You can't go back to the beginning. You know, I can't stand in front of the mirror and say, you know, I really screwed up my 20s. I want to go back and do them again. <laughs> All we can do is, I often, just, I often think of it as like those moving things on, in the um, airports, those moving sidewalks, and people have stepped off, and they can get step on, and they're right with us again. You know, you're right with me in this day of sobriety, and I'm right with you. And uh, I just... Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, I just want to give some comfort to people that are struggling and are in and out and in and out, and they think that, you know, it's, we are definitely... I'm very grateful that I have 34 years, and it's wonderful that I have 34 years of continuous sobriety, but I can't imagine the pain of going in and out and slipping and picking up after 12 years, 18 years. It, it, it's a horror, and I don't need to put another burden on you telling you you've got to go back. You know, if the, if the window breaks in the fifth-floor bedroom, I don't have to tear the house down all the way to the basement to fix that 
window. And, uh, you know, I want to leave a message that we're all together, no matter how long or little that we have in, in this program. And um, that's a, a very powerful uh, thing for me right now, to, uh, because I'm, I'm sponsoring a man who picked up after uh, 19 years, and um, he couldn't, it was such a horror for him. And um, he, I told him, learn the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. Go delve into how we came about. So here we are. I want to thank you for going to meetings. I want to thank you for doing service, for putting money in the basket, for being my friends, and for all that you do to make this all possible. Because if you weren't here, my life would just have been a continuation, I think, of the steps of the Metropolitan. So. Thank you deeply for your sobriety. Thank you.